HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register now for the 2023 conference, featuring more than 90 in-person sessions and 25 virtual sessions on farming and food systems. Learn more at pasafarming.org slash conference. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy, and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome farmer and baker Melissa Sarongan. In this episode, we'll talk to Melissa about growing grain for your own bread, the challenges of small-scale farming, and we'll hear Melissa's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was passionately interested in bread baking. She was intent on replicating bakery bread at home, even though she'd been warned the heat of commercial bread ovens was impossible to produce in a home kitchen. It took Paul Child's Yankee ingenuity, as Julia called it, adding an asbestos tile and water to make steam in the oven to produce a desirable result. This was vividly depicted in HBO Max's Julia television series. It's a clear indication of how bread making takes such skill and patience that Julia didn't even tackle it until she and Simone Beck wrote Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 2, in which Julia advises, Whether you are a home or professional baker, you will find that time is really the key to successful bread making. Julia notes that you won't find pans for home bread baking for sale in France, as why would anyone waste time making something inferior to what you can easily buy at your local boulangerie? 
However, upon her return to the United States in the 1960s, where bread was being produced in high volume, giant factories, Julia was determined to improve the state of American bread, a quest which has only come into full bloom some 50 years later. Someone who understands the passion and challenges of making good bread, as well as Julia, is farmer and baker Melissa Sarongan. We met Melissa in May at the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience's Taste of Santa Barbara. You may remember hearing from her in episode 163 as one of the panelists from our Rebuilding the Food System discussion. Since time was limited, we wanted to hear more about her work. Melissa is co-owner, head baker, and grain farmer at Piedra Sassi Wine and Bread in Lompoc, California, in Santa Barbara County. A familiar figure at Santa Barbara's famed farmer's markets where she sells her bread and other provisions like mustard and vinegar, as well as Piedra Sassi wine, she's active in the local agricultural community. A founding member of the farming collaborative California Plowshares, Melissa's taken a leadership role in helping others overcome many of the obstacles in smaller scale farming. She joins us today to share her commitment to growing local heritage grains and the rewards and challenges of small-scale farming. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Todd. We're glad you could join us. So I wanted to start with this kind of interesting concept, which get into the maybe commonalities and differences or how logical or, or not it is. Why did you decide to grow grapes and grain together? Is that how commonly done is that? Um, well, I don't think it's very commonly done. And we do have our fields separate, our uh, vineyards and our, um, our grain fields. But um, bringing them together in one, um, in one business, I don't think is terribly common. I think maybe because people really just want to choose their poison of a struggling small business. <laughs> pick a winery or pick a bakery. Don't pick them both. Um, but, um, you know, the reason, you know, we had been... Uh, making wine for Pietro Sassi. I think Pietro Sassi started in 2003. And we had been making wine. We started a uh, t small tasting room in Lompoc at the time, but we noticed that people were leaving um, after like a couple of hours because there really, at the time, was not a whole lot of food that uh, people, that the wine tourists wanted to, wanted to partake of. And so they would leave for places like Buellton or Solvang or San Inez or back to Santa Barbara. And so we said, well, you know, if we had... Um, you know, I mean, we are, our winery is in a very industrial area. And we said, well, you know, it's industrial, so you can't really have a restaurant. So maybe what if we had a bakery? If we had a bakery, we could have, um, you know, we could have bread and we could sell the bread. And then maybe, that, maybe that'll work. We'll make little sandwiches and stuff. And so that was really the beginning of it. But then really it was about the grain when we hadn't really thought about starting the grain uh, farming. And we, but, and then we went to this farmer's market and they said, oh, it'll be great if you could sell your bread here, but you have to be a producer. And we're like, yeah, we're going to produce it. We're going to sell, we're going to, we're going to make the bread. And they said, no, 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 you have to grow the grain. And that was to meet the requirements for, for sellers at the market. They have to be growers. Yes. So Santa Barbara County, not all, uh, not all farmer's markets have this requirement for the, what we call the, um, uh, what is it called? Process. I forget what the California, not, not for, for like the bread vendors. They're not all of the California farmers markets require that you grow your grain, but Santa Barbara does. And so I had no idea. 
Um, and we got back in the car and I said, well, that, you know, that's too bad. We won't be able to do that. You know, my husband is a very persistent man. And he said, no, no. He, see, he tends to see things, possibility where others do not. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, no, no. I think we can do this. And so we started. We had no idea what we're do we were doing. We uh, don't still, you know, I mean, I think all grain farmers would laugh at that because they would say, well, we still don't really know what we're doing. But it is, um, you know, it's it was really rewarding. It's really nice to be able to decide what you're going to do, what you're going to plant that year. Um, which is really different from uh, vineyards. When you plant a vineyard, you're like, okay, that's what we've got. We've got Syrah and we've got a lot of it. And that's just what we're going to make. But with um, grain farming, you can switch it up, which was a nice change. So I was going to ask you, and you've sort of answered this question already, but I want to underscore it because you've kind of underplayed the significance of it. But I was going to say, which came first, the baking or growing? And it sounds like actually neither. You guys just started with this idea and then that you should have bread. It, it doesn't sound like you set out to be like, I'm really interested in baking and I want to become a baker. Or, or was that always there in some capacity? I think what we really wanted to do was we wanted to support the the wine experience originally, right? We wanted, you know, all these people were coming to taste the wine and they were really enjoying it, but they really didn't have a whole lot of reason to stick around our little area. Um, and so we said, well, you know, maybe we can make them stick around by like giving them a little bit of food or, you know, like, and then it became, you know, I mean, most of our a lot of our uh, businesses end up this way. We're like, oh, that'd be a great idea. And then, you know, later on, like six months or a year later, we think, oh, maybe that wasn't such a great idea. Um, but we, we, you know, we really love the all the, these processes, you know, the making of the wine, the fermentation of the wine, you know. Um, and we also have, you know, Sashi cooked professionally with um, our other business partner, Peter Paston. And, you know, um, Peter said, oh, you know, I can teach you guys how to make bread. That'll be great. And, you know, we found this wood burning oven that somebody was going to build for us in this cute little mill that looked like it had been, been made by elves. So we really love all the processes. And so all of these things just kind of started to like pile on. They're like, oh, you know, that'd be great if we had a little wood fired oven. Oh, that'd be great if we had a little mill. Oh, that'd be great, I guess, if we could farm grain. And so it just kind of snowballed. Um, but I, I want to dig deeper here because I've talked okay, to plenty of winemakers and I don't think mm. any one of them has ever said, I went from thinking we need some more food for wine tasting to mm. planting our own grain. I and I, one thing I was going to ask you too, it's not like you're in the one of the largest grain producing regions in the country, right? It's no. not that common to grow wheat in the Central Coast, is it? No, I mean, people will grow alfalfa here. You know, there are people who, you know, there are combines, and uh, but they're really large because people are growing alfalfa for their horses. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's more for livestock feed than anything. And so, yeah, there are a couple, there were a couple of people doing it and there are more people doing it now, um, kind of maybe for the beer industry mm. um, a little bit. But yeah, we were we got in touch with um, kind of a veteran farmer and um, like a lot of veteran farmers, he had a lot of, uh, uh, he, he, he 
was not very encouraging. (laughs) He was like, that is the worst idea ever. Don't do it. He was, yeah, he was, he was really, he was really telling the truth for sure. But, um, you know, with his help, we planted our first thing and, you know, we just kind of, I remember our first baker, Kate Heller, she, she was, um, she was, she was very young and really reticent about doing this very, it would seem to her a very large operation of like throwing grain in the ground and seeing what was going to happen. She said, I don't think that you guys have really, really thought this through. And we're like, well, if it doesn't work, that's okay. I mean, it, it, because our, 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 our bar for loss had already been set very high with vineyards, right? I mean, like when you, it, it's contrary to the it's, movie it's, image of it. If you really want right. to, if you have extra money to burn or lose, wine right. is the perfect business for you, right? <laughs> right, exactly, right. Like it's 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 exactly like our wood burning oven. Just throw <laughs> it all in, throw it all in there, and light a match. But you know, I mean, that was really you know for us. We said, wait, but we can just put it in and then learn and then do it again. Like, that's amazing because when you do install a vineyard, I mean, it's there. Like the only thing that you can really do later, I mean, you can tear it up, but then you, uh, you know, and replant, but then you lose, what, four or five years? And then, you know, so really the only thing that you can do when you um, install a vineyard and you want to change anything, one of the biggest things that you can do, I guess, is to graft over, but you still lose a year. And so the idea that we could just like keep on doing this and learning and doing it differently again, was just so, um, seems so flexible to us. Oh, I see what you're Um, saying, that that growing grain is, there's more renewal of the plants on an annual basis than than vines, which you have to let mature. Which are perennial. Right, yeah. And and so you get get a do-over every year. Um, and you know, with the, you know, so, so compared to wineries where you don't get a do over with the planting where what you've got in barrel, you got to sell that before you get to the other stuff. Um, it seemed, it it, it, seemed flexible and simpler. Well, this seems like we could make a go of this. Yeah. And did you, (laughs) did you have extra land too? Is that also one of the things that enabled you to do this? No, but the interesting thing about Santa Barbara County is that it has been for a very, very long time, very anti-development. And so in terms of agriculture, there aren't that many small farms. You have, you know, if you talk to any vineyard owners, they have many, many of them have these very large swaths of land, like 180 acres, 100 acres, because there is a hundred acre ag minimum. And it's relatively difficult to subdivide. That might be changing a little bit now, but it has been historically relatively difficult to make smaller plots of land out of the big ranches. And so people would buy, you know, this would have been like in the eighties and nineties when land was less expensive, but people would buy these very large ranches and then plant vineyards on them. So, but but they would only plant vineyards on the specific parts that they thought would make good wine Mm -hmm. or, or whatever, whatever metric they were using to decide. And so, so they had a lot of stuff that a lot of land that just wasn't being used. And so I said, we don't even have any land. We have this, you know, Juliet was, I mean, our daughter was like a toddler. She was in preschool. And I said, we're busy. We can't learn how to be grain growers. And Sashi said, Oh, but you know, you, we, we, we know people, we know, we know people who have land and how hard can it really be? Um, <laughs> wow. That, that is, that is high on the optimist scale. That is amazing. It, it, so, he, 
Yeah, you got his number. He is an optimist. Wow, wow. <laughs> and so is all the land you grow grain on even today land that you rent from from other landowners? Yes. Wow. Yes, it is. And so, you know, luckily at the you know, at the time there was somebody who um, I think it was on Rusak land, actually, the very first uh, one that we had. And, um, you know, the Stoltmans who were right across the street, they helped us out. And it was just this real like, hey, look, like we can we can do this. We like drive past the grain growing. And we'd say, oh, my God, that actually is happening. And that veteran farmer, he came by and he was he was so surprised. He's like, wow, well, it actually worked. And also, let's talk about your approach, too, because you're not growing Monsanto standard, right? You you made right. some very specific decisions about even what type of grain. So can you talk about both what you grow and how you decided to grow that kind of grain? Sure. So the very first year, we really didn't know what we were going to do. And so we had a couple, you know, um, the Hayes Ranch over here in Lompoc and the Rusak land that we were also using. Um, we kind of decided to grow a couple of different things just based on um, what some of our other, some of the other grain farmers were interested in and what some of the other bakers that we knew were interested in. And so we grew some red fife, which is a heritage grain, and we grew some sonora, which is also heritage grain. And then we also grew some durum, which was um, not, that durum was not heritage, but we were really interested in it because Peter Paston is, um, you know, his, his cuisine is Italian and the bread that he usually makes has a little bit of durum in it. And so we said, oh, let's go ahead and try this. Um, and so, but the reason that we chose all of those things was, I mean, a lot of it was personal, you know, the Durham was definitely because of Peter, um, and his love for Durham and the Sonora was because, uh, and the Red Five because, you know, we had all these other, we knew these bakers and they're like, oh, well, these are really great grains. These are, you know, like, and they're, and people aren't growing them enough. So that's fascinating. So it was actually kind of demand and marketplace driven. It wasn't necessarily like some great moral stand you were taking against. Um, well, some of it also, people were saying, you know, you really have, we really, you know, I think people were saying, well, we really have to, cons we have to be conservationists of these heritage grains. Mm. If people don't, if people are, if, you know, if they're not very commercial because they're, you know, they don't have the same disease resist, you know, a lot of them don't have the same disease resistance as some other great, some, some modern cultivars. And, and, um, so there really was a little bit more, um, urgency, I think, to help out, um, mm. you know, just in the same way that you, and, and also really like, like, curiosity about what well, what makes these great why do people want to save these things like what's so great and you know we had all known from our love of food that there are heirloom tomatoes that taste better than commercial tomatoes right there are heirloom strawberries that have this incredible intense flavor and so we had bought into the idea that something heritage what could be unique could be something worth saving and worth uh, championing. So some of it was uh, something that we had already bought into, which is the idea that things taste good. And sometimes they're not the most commercial things, but it's worth it to show people what they do. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like ever, you know, now everybody knows heirloom tomatoes. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, 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 and so we are like, well, you know, the grains, you know, we are so used to grains just being this commodity, but what if they really were this, very special thing in the same way. Um, it took us a little while to figure out how to use them well, 
like to figure out how to showcase them. Um, and uh, that that really took a lot more experimentation, a lot more guidance from other bakers. But but was um, that in the milling actually and other processes was, than the actual growing of it? Yes. So that was definitely in the milling, a little bit in the growing, but definitely in the milling. So we, uh, so, you know, I mean, I don't know, I think that we might've talked about this um, uh, at the panel, but one of the things that I, people are always asking me, why does your bread taste so different? It tastes so different from all these other people's, even if these other people's bread tastes good, it just doesn't have that same thing. And I liken it, I liken that fresh milled flavor to, um, of bread as the same thing or analogous to freshly milled coffee. So freshly milled coffee, you know, just has all of these great aromas and complexities that coffee that you would, you know, get from a can and brew it or make an espresso from just doesn't really have that same kind of intensity or, or life. Mm. And, uh, and freshly milled grains and freshly milled grains uh, that have been saved for their flavor um, are, have just this incredible vibrancy that I think is so important for people to be able to understand. That's no, that's a great explanation of it. It, 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 it pains me. We can't hand out samples of your bread right now, but we'll, we'll have to <laughs> leave people to, to imagine. smell a vision If only we could have smell a vision One day, one day soon, probably. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be back with more from Melissa Sarangan from Piedra Saucy Wine and Bread in Lompoc, California. Stay with us. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Help HRN meet its end-of-the-year fundraising goal by donating today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Your tax-deductible donation helps make Inside Julia's Kitchen and more than 30 other shows possible. If you donate $90 or more before the end of 2022, they'll send you a limited-edition shirt designed by graphic artist Chema Scandal, available only during this membership drive. All donors become HRN members, the first to hear about special events and food radio insider news. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to support HRN's mission to create a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious world. Cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower. Register now for PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2023 conference. Access more than 100 sessions on topics including environmental conservation, food justice, sustainable food and textile production, renewable energy, and much more. Featuring a not-to-be-missed lineup of speakers, including indigenous environmental scientist and author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Jessica Hernandez, Scottish farmer and co-producer of the podcast, Landed, Cole Gordon, best-selling author of The Art of Fermentation, Sandor Katz, co-owners of heritage seed company True Love Seeds, Owen Taylor and Chris Bolden Newsom, and many more. There are two ways to attend, virtually or in person. PASA's virtual conference takes place January 17th through 19th. Join from anywhere. PASA's in-person conference is in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 11th. 
and includes social and networking events, plus an expansive trade show. Register now at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. Welcome back. We're talking to farmer and baker Melissa Sarongan of Piedra Saucy Wine and Bread on California's Central Coast. So, Melissa, I want to talk to you about the milling aspect, but, but I want to go back to because we haven't really talked about how you made this leap into being a baker as well, because you talked about yeah. how you had a baker in the beginning and that the original idea was growing grain. At what point mm-hmm. were you like, okay, I'm because that's a whole other skill set. Like the farmer right. you talked to, I'm sure was not a, a bread baker. So when did you make that also major leap in addition? You know, we had, um, we had, we, we, we decided when we just, when we started building the bakery, we're like, oh, you know, we have a couple of people who are interested in bread baking. And, you know, usually one of the things that I think that we have realized is bread baking is really mostly a young person's pursuit for like for most of the for most of the tasks um i'm beginning to feel this greatly now mm. but um but i i i you know bread bread making you know you, you you have to be fit and you know you have to you have to be able to do all the work it's a lot of work it's a lot of lifting it's a lot of standing there's just a lot of strength that you do have to have and so we would get these young people who were really lovely and energetic and gifted and they would come and they would be excited. They would see the mill, they would see the wood burning oven, they would see the fields. Um, they would see all of this, um, you know, or they would see all of these really great toys <laughs> that they could work with. Um, and then they would come and they'd be excited and interested and intensely working. And then after a couple of months when they could like lift their head up and say, okay, you know, I kind of feel like I have a little bit more of a handle on this. They would look up and they would say, where am I living? Because, you know, where we live is kind of, um, you know, it's just, on, you know, it's, it's North County, Santa Barbara, and Lompoc is a pretty small town. And it's, for, it, for a lot of people, it's a commuter town to Santa Barbara. Um, there are a lot of families there, but there's not really a young person scene. No, it's the country, right? I mean, you were saying even yes. commuting to distance to Santa Barbara, it's what, a 50-minute drive on the highway? Yes, depending on how nascar you are yes mm. mm-hmm. so um so it is it's it's far you know um it, it's far enough that um that going down to santa barbara for like a movie was a you know would have been just a little bit oh you know i don't know if i really feel like it you know you can't and so um the so they would be very isolated up here and um you know and, and so it, it became difficult you know they didn't just didn't really have very much community um, and so then after a while they would leave and everything would change because with the bread baker, all, all of the bread changes because, you know, um, you know, Sashi and I, at the time, we didn't know how to commercially braise baked bread. And so we'd be like, well, we can't do it right now. So we have to find a baker and the bread would change. And then we would have to get all of the customers at the market used to the bread. And so it would be this huge process at every single turnover. And at the very last turnover, we said, you know what? Um, maybe this isn't a very good idea. And we had a consultant come in, a very, very, like, over, um, a, like, a, a, a very well-trained baker who uh, consulted with us. And we said, you know, just bake for us for a little while and tell us what you see. And, you know, make some breads and tell us what you think. And so he didn't. 
after three months, he said, oh, like, I don't know why anybody who is not a baker would want to open a bakery. <laughs> and we were like, yeah, maybe that really wasn't that great of an idea. And he said, so I really think that an owner needs to be the baker. And we were all sitting in the tasting room, which, is, which was closed. And there was the baker consultant, me and Sashi and our business partner, Peter. And I'm sitting there taking notes and I realize that nobody's talking and I look up and they're all looking at me. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, I, I see. I'm going to be the baker. And they said, well, you know, if you want to give it a shot. So I gave it a shot. And, and how long you know, ago that, was this? Uh, that was the fall of 2015. So seven years ago. Okay. And then uh, our baker left in the spring, I think, of that year. And I took over, um, you know, I was just baking by myself at that point. And um, it was, you know, it was a very, very good time for me because, our, you know, our daughter was young. I didn't really, you know, I had been managing the tasting room for a while. But, you know, having your kid grow up in a tasting room on the weekend <laughs> just didn't, did not appeal for some reason. So, you know, it was a good, you know, we would go down, she and I would wake up really early on Saturdays and we would go down to the market and we would sell our bread and she would run around with the other farmer's kids. It was very wholesome. And so for the time in our lives, it was really lovely because it just brought us a lot closer to the farmer's market, which I have always loved, and closer to other farmers and to um, the people who were interested in buying the bread. Um, and so it just seemed a little, it, 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 everything matched. Everything just kind of matched up. Got it. So let's talk about your milling resource. And so sure. how you got involved in having one and creating one and actually mm -hmm. even describe it. Cause I like when people there's all actually, I think there's more version of mills than people picturing the solving mills with the windmill, the old fashioned oh, right. kind of thing. So tell us more about like, why did you need one and how hard was it to organize one? And what are you doing with California plowshares? Oh, sure. So, you know, so we have our flour mill. And, um, and so that is um, at the bakery, but the mill that we are interested in, or the mill that we were trying to replace uh, was, uh, or the fact that our, that our local seed cleaner here in Santa Barbara County um, closed down after many, many years. And so those of us who had, who had uh, crops that needed to be cleaned and bagged, um, so people who uh, grow beans or people who grow grain, um, uh, were not able to, once they harvested, um, clean their seed for use. Um, and so, uh, it just goes through, it gets sorted, it get you know, all of the, all the chaff gets taken away, all of the other, uh, plant material gets taken away and then gets nicely bagged ready for milling. And so that was the, uh, the resource that we were trying to replace because they just, they ended up closing down. Um, and the reason that this is so important is because when you have this local resource, if you really believe in local food, you'd not only believe in the food, the fact in the idea that the food is grown close to where it is consumed, but you also believe in the idea that you don't want it to move from one place to another, to another, racking up all these food miles. Mm. You want it just to stay there and move on its way to the end consumer with very, very little distance. And, you know, 
it's it's better for so many reasons. It's better because um, uh, you are supporting a small business that is in your home area, um, which we all know is better for the local economy. Um, uh, local businesses tend to invest and spend their money uh, back in the community. Um, and it's also just really important for the environment if you're not just shipping your stuff all over the place. Um, and so for the bread, we really wanted to keep it a local thing. And we knew that other people here in Santa Barbara County um, were also missing this. And so we said, well, what can we do to help out? Um, what can we do to replace this and not, um, not move all of our crops all over California? Because we were looking at like an hour, two hours, three hours of moving our stuff. And that also is really, it's really important also in the sense that you kind of, as a farmer, want things to be as much under your control as possible. And so when you ship your very small crop off to a very large seed cleaner, you're kind of at the end of the line a lot of the time um, because you represent such a small client. And so we said, well, you know, if we could have a relatively small seed cleaning operation here, that would be great. So one thing that Santa Barbara County has, which is a great resource for all, all of us, for consumers and farmers alike, is the Santa Barbara County Food Action Network. And the Santa Barbara County Food Action Network is trying to bolster up all of these things that make a robust local food economy and food supply. And so they said, hey, you know, um, we have this, we have an opportunity to, um, to help you out with some of that equipment because we know that it's really important to you guys. What do you think? And we're like, okay. And we said, well, why don't you let just write us a proposal? And so we wrote a proposal and we were able to get some money, not only for the seed cleaner, but for all of these other little pieces of farming equipment that our farmers really needed and were interested in using, but really could not afford on their own. And so that is really what started California Plowshares is this idea that, you know what, we are all going to try and share this equipment and share, you know, be a little bit more collaborative in our farming, um, share our resources a little bit more um, and really build this network that we really felt like we were missing. And that's a lot of times is difficult, especially for emerging farmers to build up. And um, we wanted to be able to eliminate a few more of those obstacles that are in the way of these new and emerging farmers and farmers who were interested in maybe changing some of their practices or making them a little more sustainable um, or making them and, and also making them a little bit more sustainable and uh, financially sustainable. Um, so these were really important goals that we think really helps our local food system. You know, we want younger, we want new farmers also younger farmers, the age of farmers, the average age of farmers in Santa Barbara, in California, I think is in 60 or 70. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to, um, to, to encourage um, and help, not just encourage, but help people see that farming, that, that or help people make a, a, a career out of this. Um, because if we don't, then we won't really have this lo local robust healthy local food system in our area. And I think it was something I wanted to pick on that you mentioned and you used a, a, maybe a, a term that has more meaning to you than it might everybody else. You were talking about food miles and mm. I think, and reducing those, which I think sometimes comes across to people as purely like a, 
environmental concern. But mm. I think from, in particular, we're talking of Frank Reese, who's a turkey, far, a heritage turkey breed farmer in Kansas. And mm. one of the big things he pointed out, because his turkeys are really expensive compared to even like a Whole Foods organic turkey. Mm -hmm. But he pointed out for that exact reason, the only slaughterhouse he can use is in Ohio. And when he ships turkeys from Kansas to Ohio, that mm -hmm. costs money that he has yes. to add to his thing. And it was that what you were also referring to is that if the farther you have to truck your stuff to get some process done to it, the more you have to add to what you charge the end consumer, no? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think that we... Um, we you you look at a lot of the a, a lot of the economies of scale that more commercial farming um, uh, or, or larger scale farming might be able to have, um, and these are not really available to these small farmers. Um, you know we you know at least as individuals, and so um, the so one of the reasons that California plowshares exists is to try and see. Um, where we can share equipment, uh, buy collectively, perhaps, um, you know, just try and get, try and make some of those, try and carve away at some of that, um, some of that cost um, to farmers so that they can just operate a little bit more um, in, in a way that makes more financial sense to them. And also, and also, ideally, that will also then get passed on to the consumer. It is a way for us to control more so that we can, so, th so that our, our, our costs are lower. Well, and I think one of the other things you were touching on too is if you can make the costs of farming lower and the mm -hmm. resources greater, it will be more attractive to a next generation, which is a big barrier right now. There are people who are interested, but it's daunting. So many people who are interested. So many people, but imagine all of the things that are um, that are concerning or that are uncertain, right? I mean, the climate, um, land, you know, uh, you know, land permanence, um, land tenure, being able to farm the same land over and over, which we need to be able to make more sustainable decisions on that land because you know, using organic materials and using compost, these are kind of long-term projects, not just one-year projects, and so. Um, you know, we have all of these things that we that that our farmers kind of want to be doing that they know is good for them, is good for their community, is good for the food. But there are so many other barriers. And so what we want to do is we know that we know that faith in that idea is there, but we need to carve away at all of the other things that are barriers and uncertainties. And so that's one of the reasons that, uh, that something like California Plowshares can really give people a little bit more comfort or stability in starting their own, in starting their own farm or starting a small project. So at Piedrasasa, you guys are both growers and makers, which is rather unusual, not that both exist, but they often aren't done together. And I think you've already touched upon some of the inherent benefits and challenges of doing that. But also in thinking about California plowshares, you know, you, we're talking about a lot of labor intensive work for a very small business and operation. And I was just curious about the sustainability with a small s of that, and whether mm -hmm. you guys do feel like you've reach some capacity limits or through California plowshares, you're seeing a kind of way to 
expand? Like, what's your perspective look, looking toward the future? You know, I think that there is, I mean, I definitely see ways to expand with California plowshares. Um, I think that being able to farm with other people um, and um, be able to learn from what uh, from what we are all experiencing, um, and uh, and share our knowledge. Um, I think that that is you know we have definitely um, good things in the works because of that. Um, you know we all really like we all really like a little bit more control. So being a both a grower and a maker, you know, being both the being the person who makes the thing that the end user buys. Um, is really very gratifying, I think, you know, um, and being in control of that process from the seed all the way to that bagged loaf of bread is also really, really lovely. Um, I do think, though, that, you know, I mean, if there are limits, you know, right now we're kind of at this crossroads with Piedra Saucy because, um, you know, my daughter is in high school now and, uh, Things are changing a little bit for all of us. And I've been the baker for seven years. And I really can see that the farming advocacy needs a little bit more of my time and energy. Um, and I really would like to give it that. Um, and so right now, it's a little bit more of an issue with, um, with uh, people resources, I think. Um, not everybody wants to sit in a bakery and, uh, you know, walk, you know, oversee a mill and then shape a bunch of different, shape like a couple of hundred loaves and, uh, and, and put them into a wood fired oven. <laughs> and so, um, you know, one of the things that we're seeing here is that, you know, we, that we're really asking ourselves is, okay, what's our next step? Um, do, you know, uh, there are many, many ways that we can help people understand what fresh milling, freshly milled flour is. And some of it is through our own direct sources, you know, like being able to, being able to sell our bread at the farmer's market. But some of it could also be about just, um, help sharing our knowledge, you know, helping other people understand how to capture that taste and why it, it, why it makes the bread so much more exciting and interesting. And also just being able to, I think with, uh, with California plowshares, being able to help other farmers. Um, I think that there is a lot, one of the things that, you know, I've been working kind of in a solitary way at the bakery for about six years now by myself. I think it's, it might be time to be working with other people to be working for some greater good. And of the grain you produce, do you use all of it or had you been using all of it to bake bread or were you already selling it to other producers? Oh, um, I would sell a little bit of flour at the farmer's market. for So just direct. Um, and uh, so just to uh, my customers, uh, uh, people who were coming to buy their groceries. Um, and uh, but I um, but I was using everything. I was using it all for my um, own uh, for my own baking, um, for the bakery, um, which was this really lovely little closed system. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, and so some years I would not have an, I would run out of rye and I would, you know, people would come and say, Oh, I'd like the rye bread. And I would say, sorry, I just don't have it. And that idea for a lot of people that you don't have a bread because you ran out of the crop was just, you know, that, you know, 
that's just that, that that's so unusual to hear somebody say, which was really funny. But I think that well, um, and that goes to I think your vision as a maker, right? Because in theory, you could have gone and bought Rye from another producer, even someone doing Heritage, but you chose not to. I assume because the sense of place and that connection is important to what you make. Yes, and also the uh, farmers market is very strict about this. Oh, so, so you wouldn't have been able to sell. Mm, so you know, so it's so it's interesting because I think that you know um, the I, I do love the mission of helping people see bread and grains a little bit more. I mean, it's great that that they can be shelf stable. But it is really, really lovely to be able to show people that it that what the difference is, you know. Um, and I do really think that that anal- analogy with coffee is really big because I think that now you know it's 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 really understood that people are like, well, you know, I, I maybe you know I I don't have a coffee grinder at home, but I know that when I go to my barista, it tastes really different, you know. And that is something that I think that you know we can bring to grain. Um, you know, we can get people to understand that, you know, some of the, you know, stone milled flour is perishable and you should be storing it in your freezer or, um, you know, uh, all of these different ways to think of grain as this resource that you kind of have to preserve. Um, it's, you know, it has this life. Uh, and, and I think that that's, that is a really, that's a very exciting thing to, to, to know that there's still all that work to be done. Well, and a great reminder that it is a precious resource and that this thing that we've gotten used to is everything being available all the time has mm-hmm. ha, has costs that, mm-hmm. you know, I think we're in a big period of reframing people's perspectives about things that they've taken for granted that are pretty commonplace, but actually only a result of the last 50 years of changes in food production and consumption. Right, right. The, um, the, it, I mean, it is great that we can have this nutritious, enriched flour that is shelf-stable, right? There's no question. But it has taken us a little bit further away from what the original source is. And we can learn a little bit about that and learn a little bit about what is, you know, what, what, what can be, what the possibility, possibilities still are in that. Well, that's a great way to pause on the possibilities. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, we'll hear Melissa's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might've inspired them in their career. Melissa, what's your Julia moment? Um, You know, in some ways it's kind of a collage of moments, Um, but I think it really did start with that. I think it was the Tarte Tatin um, episode where it just falls apart. You know, she takes it out of the oven and she puts the she turns the pan over onto the plate, and it just—it's a big mess. Yeah, and um, and you know, she like puts it. She like puts it back together, um, and she's so composed 
you know, I mean, in, in a way that is not unnatural, right. In a way that is just so, um, um, she knows that things are going to happen. She knows that things are not going to happen the way that you intend them to be, but she knows that she'll be able to deal with them. And one thing that I think is really great about Julia's life is that she shows us that you don't have to have learned all of this in the most classic, classic, um, conventional way. You can accidentally learn something or accidentally be pushed into a career or a job that then wakes something up in you. And the fact that she was always learning and always interested, um, you know, is I think a really, really important thing for us all to, um, for us all to, to really treasure. Um, she really loved food, but she also just really loved learning and she loved, mm. you know, she, she, she really was, had never really stopped. And it's kind of like that, uh, uh, Michelangelo quote when he was, I think, you know, in, later on in his years, he said, I'm always learning. Um, and I think that that's something that is a real gift when you look at Julia's body of work, that um, you can still be pushing forward, um, contributing, useful. You can have so many new things to say, even as you move on um, in your life. Um, and I think that that's, for me, um, you know, and to be able to do that with a lot of joy and a lot of um, enjoyment of of being in the moment and the people that you meet through those endeavors is just a really, every time I see her, I smile. Every time I see her on TV, it's just, she's just a really great life force. Well, that's lovely. And I think, you know, such a great uh, reflection of everything you just said about all the things that you, you've discovered in, in your life and career. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Melissa. Thank you, Todd. It was lovely. It was a pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, to hear more from Melissa, it's at Piedra Saucy on Facebook and Instagram and at Melissa Sarongan and at California Plowshares on Instagram. And you can check out PiedraSaucy.com for more information or to plan a visit. It's P-I-E -E, like pie, D-R-A-S-A-S-S-I. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. Make sure you're also following at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for all the latest in and around Santa Barbara. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song, New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.